Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Some couples fight about money or parenting or the right way to load the dishwasher or where to clip your toenails. My husband, Nate, and I fight about those things sometimes, too. But one of our most contentious points of conflict is one you won't find in marriage books or talk about with your therapist, although maybe we should have. The recurring fight that defined our marriage for at least a decade was hair. Let me give that some context. When I met Nate back in 2001, I was a senior in college at the University of Wisconsin, i just gotten my heart broken by the guy who lived across the hall from me. Every time I entered or exited our apartment, I had to see him palling around with his new girlfriend, who he'd found about two seconds after we broke up. I was feeling pretty cynical about love. And then one night, my friend Nora called me up and invited me to take a spur-of-the-moment trip with her to Boston. She was dealing with her own relationship troubles and wanted to get out of Dodge, Neither of us had ever been to Boston, and we were college kids with no money. But my brother was going to school there, so we had a place to stay. This was back in the early days of Priceline, when you could find flights for cheap if you timed it right. She'd found a round trip from Chicago to Boston for just 80 bucks, but we had to decide fast. This was a Wednesday. The flight was for Thursday, the very next day. I felt giddy as I drove from Madison to Chicago to meet up with Nora. It was the most impulsive thing I'd ever done. When that plane took off from Chicago, we both laughed, still not quite believing this last-minute thing we were doing. It was exhilarating. And then, all at once, everything changed. The overhead lights flickered. The plane dropped in the sky. And all around us, people screamed. This wasn't turbulence. Something was very wrong. The flight attendants started running up and down the aisles, urging people to stay in their seats. Nora and I grabbed each other's hands and whispered prayers. The seatbelt sign went back on and we heard the captain's voice. One of our engines had blown out, he told us, and we need to make an immediate emergency landing in Detroit. Even with his practice calm, you could hear the tension in his voice. The rest of the flight had the eerie quiet of a room full of people too nervous to talk. We landed safely in Detroit, a little rattled and weary, but okay. We spent several hours waiting in lines to see if we could get on another flight to Boston, but they were all full. Around 10 o'clock at night, the airline finally announced that they'd put us up in a hotel for the night, and we could take a 6 a.m. flight the next morning. We'd been checking in with my brother with each update, feeding quarters into the payphone. This was 2001, back before normal people had cell phones. That's great you can get here tomorrow, he said, but there's one problem. I won't have any way to get you into my apartment. I've got a 24-hour shift in the hospital and won't be out until Saturday. We took in this information and tried not to panic. We didn't think we knew anyone else in Boston. But then Nora remembered that a guy she'd dated briefly was from Boston. She thought he might even be living there now. His parents and her parents had gone to college together, so she was able to track down his number. And he said, sure, no problem. He lived with his friend Jill and Jill's sister. We'd be welcome to stay with them for the night. 
That guy was Jake Armiding, the fabulous folk and bluegrass musician and Nate's childhood best friend. Jake's roommate wasn't Jill, but Chill, the nickname assigned to, you guessed it, my now husband Nate. This detail alone had me intrigued. Who was this guy who everyone called Chill? I wasn't sure if it was cool or weird that he was still going by his childhood nickname. The next day, Jake picked us up from the airport, and we spent the day driving the windy roads of New England's North Shore, listening to Bela Fleck and Tony Rice and snoozing while we drove. Jake and Chill had grown up there, and though I was exhausted from not sleeping much the night before, it was a comfort to be taken care of by a stranger, to feel even in this new place strangely at home. That evening, we went to Jake's concert, and at last, I met this Chill, I don't know what I expected, but I was pleasantly surprised. Chill was a cute, clean-cut guy with short, dark hair, more thoughtfully dressed than most of the guys I knew. With Jake on stage, Chill took over the role of host. He seemed genuinely interested as he asked Nora and me about our lives. I decided that the nickname was cool. Chill. It seemed right for him. That night, Jake and Chill slept on the couch and gave us their bunk beds. The next morning, Jake made us pancakes, and we all sat around an old blue door they'd fashioned into a makeshift dining room table and talked for hours like old friends. I began that trip feeling cynical about love, but I left Boston feeling hopeful. Not because I thought Chill and I would end up together, that would come later, but because it had been a gift to be treated so well by strangers, to be reminded that there were still good guys out there. A couple of months later, I returned to Boston, this time to run the Boston Marathon. Then Chill came to see me in Madison, another cheap last-minute Priceline trip. By the summer, we were together, planning a future together even though I was getting ready to leave for a year of volunteering with at-risk youth in Australia. That year, we fell in love even though we were on opposite sides of the globe. The only computer I had access to was one shared by a team of 11, so my emails were frantic and unchecked, typed out as fast as I could manage during my 15-minute daily slot. This was before Skype, back when long-distance calls from the payphone down the street were expensive and required a calling card that would always run out too quickly. Mostly, we got to know each other through letters, which we'd promised to write every week, more if we could manage it. In one letter, he told me a funny story about how he grew out his hair in college and it looked so bad that one of his friends started a campus-wide cut or curl campaign to raise money for their music fraternity. People could put money in one jar or another based on whether or not they wanted Nate to perm his long locks or shave his head. People were into it and they raised a ton of money. For the grand reveal, Nate came out on stage with a paper bag over his head. He pulled it off, and the audience gasped in horror at his head of crazy curls. Until he pulled off the wig to reveal his clean-shaven cue ball of a head. Everyone cheered like wild. It was a story I probably should have paid a bit more attention to. I wasn't supposed to get to come home that Christmas, but my grandma was sick, and so the organization I was working for made an exception. 
The day after I landed in Minneapolis, I went back to the airport to pick up Chill, who was flying in to spend Christmas with my family and me. I'll never forget both my delight and then subsequent discomfort when I finally saw him coming through the security gates. He put his arms around me and we shared the kind of airport kiss you find in romantic comedies, but I was distracted by his hair. It looked like he hadn't gotten a haircut since I'd seen him five months earlier. Nate is part Chinese and he has great hair, thick and glossy and lots of it. He's a good looking guy, but the long hair made him look a little goofy. His hair was so thick that it poofed up into a bouffant, a little like a shaggy Elvis minus the rock star sideburns. I teased him about it on the drive back to my parents' house, but he didn't respond. When I pressed a little further, asking him when he was going to get his hair cut, he got prickly. Most of my family was meeting him for the first time, and they tried to be nice, but I could see them trying to figure out what they should think of this guy. One of the gifts millennials have given our world is that it is now totally fine to sport a mullet or a mohawk or even a mullet hawk. But back then, hairstyles for men were much more uniform. The bouffant made Nate seem eccentric, over the top. Maybe sensing my family's hesitance, Nate acted aloof, which only reinforced their perception of him as an East Coast elitist. My family had scheduled someone to take family photos that Christmas, and since Nate was there, he was going to be in them. I begged him to get his hair cut first, and eventually he did, but not before we had our first real fight. It was a fight we would have again and again, not just in the next year and a half before we got married, but dozens of times over the next decade. We'd have it when he grew the mullet, when he had the top knot, when he shaved his head with a Bic razor. We'd have it when he dyed the tips of his hair a coppery orange, when for a while his hair looked like a deer pelt. We'd have it when his hair was down to his shoulders and he tried to grow a mustache, a scraggly line above his upper lip, since even as an adult he has almost no facial hair. Nate has been cutting his own hair for most of the time I've known him, so often these styles were awkward and amplified. To Nate, the fight was a dumb one. He didn't care what I did with my hair. Why did I care so much about what he did with his? About what other people thought of him? For him, my irritation over his hair was representative of my need for approval from others. Why couldn't I just accept him for him, no matter what his hair looked like? I would argue back that it wasn't just about hair. It was about honoring me. I got dressed up for him all the time. Couldn't he do the same for me? Didn't he want me to be physically attracted to him? And anyway, first impressions did sometimes matter. We were young and starting out in our careers. What if he got turned away from jobs because his appearance made him seem like a slob? My family adores Nate today, but it took them a while to get over the impression the bouffant left with them. We go back and forth over the years. Sometimes I would browbeat him into a haircut. Sometimes I'd throw up my hands and give up. It was a touchy subject between us for at least the first 10 years of our marriage. I can't pinpoint the exact point when we stopped having that fight. There was no grand revelation, no moment when we finally saw eye to eye. But we don't have that fight anymore. Maybe it was just the slow evolution of our relationship, of realizing over time we were better off as allies than adversaries. 
that no matter how much work we put into our marriage, there would always be things that annoyed us about each other. There would always be things about each of us that didn't make sense, that were a little ridiculous. Can Nate explain why it drives him absolutely crazy when the shower curtain is left open instead of pulled closed? I'm sure he can, though I can't tell you what that explanation is, but I bet he has one. Can I tell you why it matters so much to me that the bowls in our dishwasher go on the bottom rack and not the middle one? Of course I can. It's because they take up less room there and they get cleaner. But that's not the point. The point is that it doesn't really matter that much where those bowls go, or whether or not the shower curtain is always closed, or whether Nate's hair is growing over his ears, or closely cropped, or in a faux hawk mullet. Sometimes we just need to let the people we love do the crazy things that make them feel a little more in control. Whether you're living with someone who is driving you nuts today, or just trying to forgive your own eccentricities, my daily gift of sanity to you is this. No matter how much work we do on ourselves or try to do on others, there are going to be things about us that are more rigid than we'd like them to be. That we feel attached to, even though it doesn't totally make sense. But what if the next time we felt annoyed at that rigidity, we saw it as an invitation to extend grace. Maybe to someone else, maybe to ourselves. Maybe it could even be the thing that makes us laugh. When Nate turned 40 a few years ago, I put together a book of photos of him. On the front page was a collage of all of his hairdos. There were many, most of them ridiculous looking. We had a good laugh. Last night, I had a dream that Nate cut his hair, that I woke up this morning to the way I like it best. Not too long, not too short. The haircut he had when I met him. The one that makes me think of chill. It was just a dream. He's currently sporting a mullet hawk. He keeps bragging to me every time someone compliments him on it on Zoom. And yes, I know that hairstyles have changed, and maybe he's even on trend. It still looks ridiculous to me. And also, it's fine. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, the best way you can support it is to subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes so others can find it too. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. I am so grateful to be sponsored by a small local business that isn't just committed to making great wines, but to making this world a better place. Get 10% off your order when you use the promo code SHELTER at brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com. When you buy wine, you support this show and also other businesses that are working toward more sustainable living. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.